Hello and welcome to Navarra FM, brought to you by Navarra Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and this week we recorded our broadcast in front of a live audience in London at Newspeak House, which is a great venue at the intersection of politics and technology. We were discussing Brexit and European politics and I was joined by my esteemed co-founder and sometimes lexiter, Aaron Bastani. I was also joined by Marina Prentoulis of Another Europe is Possible and Samuele Mazzolini, joint founder of the new left populist group in Italy, Senso Comune. We'll be running more of these live events in future as they're fun and they give us a great chance to hang out with our subscribers. So if you like the sound of that, hit up support.novaramedia.com and as a subscriber, if you're not already, you will get access. Enjoy the show. As everyone in this room will know, Brexit has been going on now for some time. Uh, nothing seems to have changed. The opinion polls seem to reflect a kind of continual churn, depending on the news story of the week. But basically, people's opinions don't seem to have changed that much. Nothing seems particularly clear about where we're going. Um, and I think maybe the best thing to start with here is just a little something, maybe Aaron... Tell us a bit about the domestic politics of Brexit, because today we've had a lot of stories about uh, maybe the Tory party is finally starting to crack under the weight of its own contradictions on Brexit. Um, but that's a problem for the Labour Party as well. I mean, they've been cracking under their own contradictions for 26 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, they've entered government a number of times once with the majority. So, I mean, yes, but that can be... Um, that can be quite long-lasting. Um, the big move for me today was uh, was Labour's position, although it's not really much of a change at all. It's being represented uh, as a major shift to soft Brexit. I always think they had a soft Brexit position, um, but playing it rhetorically, obviously, in a certain way to appease certain interests in British society. Um, so, yeah, I think today is the day that the Liberal intelligence is probably thinking to themselves, yeah, let's get on board with Labour. Let's, uh, let's have a stop, soft Brexit. And there was a great tweet by Hugo Rifkin at the Times. And he said, soft Brexit is like shooting yourself in the foot. It's probably the worst thing you can imagine, except a hard Brexit, which would be shooting yourself in the head. Uh, and that is, that's the choice that people are now confronted with. Okay. There's stuff about a second referendum, et cetera, et cetera. It's just not, it's not viable. It's not there. Why? Um, well, I mean, the polling shows that even a, 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 only, let's say, half of... I'm not going to say, let's say, there is polling from last year. Things can change, obviously. But only about half of people that voted remain want a second referendum. Where people do want a referendum, it's in the final terms of a deal. And the, again, there's a bit of ambiguity here, but I think it's, we have to be very, very frank. It's a very small proportion of people that want a referendum. Again, do you want to leave can or stay I, in Can I interrupt you? It's Oof. not a second referendum, because some of us, we want a referendum on the terms. And this is not a second referendum. It's not the same referendum. It's trying to, to deal with some, the problem that we have with the first referendum, that although people wanted to leave, nobody knew what was the plan. Nobody had discussed that very much. So a referendum on the terms is something quite different. When we know what deal we are talking about, the people have to talk again and decide in another referendum if they will go with this deal or not. Except if you think that the people should speak only once no, no. and then shut it forever. I'll quickly respond. I mean, any constitutional matter, which actually I think is probably one of the arguments for a referendum is big constitutional changes, right? So 
um, staying in the EU, Scottish independence, etc., etc. Clearly, when people vote one way or another for these things, nobody knew what an independent Scotland was going to look like. Does that then mean you have to have a referendum on about a, a currency, um, a central bank, etc., etc.? So, I, I don't really buy that, you know. Or, you know, the abortion referendum. Oh, well, you know, in Ireland, we're now going to have abortion, but we're not sure if it's 26 weeks, 28 weeks. We never had that debate. The nature of the question in 2016 was 14 words. It was a limited referendum. But the idea that, I mean, I'm actually not opposed to a second referendum on, 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 on one of two deals, but with an option of just staying in the EU, I mean, it'll, it'll embolden the far right like nothing else. Yep. Well, yeah, plus, I mean, uh, imagine the, the, the Remain camp had, uh, had won. I mean, would you invoke a second referendum in that case? Uh, no, in that case, it would be the on end what? of the... Yeah. On what? Well, if on, on, you know, on the possibility that people have, uh, you know, shifted their mind, you know, have changed their mind. No, you wouldn't. Uh, the, I, the, I think there, there's What a, I said, it's not because people have shifted their minds. What I said is that we never knew what deal they are proposing, what model they were proposing. If it was a hard Brexit, a soft Brexit, a Norwegian model, a Switzerland model or whatever model. And this is something that the people should be involved and decide. And the more the people are involved, the more the people take decisions the happier I would be. Yeah, but I think Iron's stake here is, is pretty good in the sense that, okay, what should be offered to the population is to sort of uh, give an, an opinion on actual deals, you know, at stake. Otherwise, you know, uh, it, the risk is that falling back into the option, um, into the position, well, we're going to vote again once, uh, you know, the preferred uh, outcome of the liberal elite is selected, you know, which is kind of uh, what happened the other day in Italy, just to sort of uh, open up uh, uh, an issue that I think was in the agenda as well for today. This is why I said it's not a second referendum. It's not until you get the outcome you want, it's until you know what on earth they are tell proposing. Me, tell me how that would work in practice, because it's not as if the European Union is going to present to us two modes of deal, right? So it's not like we're going to go into negotiations and say, here's your good deal and here's your evil neoliberal deal. Which would you prefer? <laughs> so, so in terms of just the mechanics, so this is what I don't understand about it because I can see the I can see the political argument for a kind of consultative democratic culture in mm -hmm. which people yeah, participate true. in setting the terms of their mm -hmm. future. What I don't understand is actually the practical political logistics of it. It is quite difficult because also you have to think of timing because, okay, if there is a deal on the table, you, you cannot go back and say, oh, sorry, we've been negotiating and now take it back and so on. So it has to be uh, quite early when, at least from the side of the party that it will be in government, I hope, I still hope that it won't be the Tories, <laughs> we have a clear proposal yeah, of what type of deal we are uh, going towards. Yeah? But um, I think we have to remember that all this the whole story happened because of the Conservative Party, because of the divisions within the Conservative Party, and that's why they gave us the referendum, not because they give a shit about the democratic uh, 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 democracy or the voice of the people. And they did that without knowing what they wanted. Yeah? What I'm saying is that in a true democracy, a democracy that we all want, and a democracy that it will be more participatory, the people have to have these discussions and take these decisions. But isn't there an argument that the people have these discussions and these decisions now when they, when they let's, so if there are general elections, say, in, in the course of the next couple of months, not impossible, given that we, we are hearing rumblings from the Conservative Party that uh, they want to decapitate the Prime Minister. 
not incitement to violence there. Um, so wouldn't it be, wouldn't people have their say by voting for the party they think that would represent, you know, their best wishes in the, in the negotiation rather than, because I still don't see the kind of, the, the, the way it would work in practice. But you also know that even from our side, the Labour Party doesn't have a very clear uh, position on that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing uh, with the two-month period that you gave there, I've been listening to that now. It's, it's a few years that we are <laughs> waiting. I'll take Aaron's point, that we are waiting for them to collapse. Unfortunately, they're quite good to pull together when their interest is jeopardized and they're going to lose a chair or something. I mean, that's the thing. The most, you would have thought the most stable conservative government since 1993. They didn't have a, 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 a parliamentary majority after 1993. The first majority they get is 2015. It turns out that's the shortest-lived conservative ministry of them all. Uh, so by inference, that would suggest that a very seemingly tenuous situation like right now could actually be incredibly stable politically because you can't play about. Right, which is what the referendum was in 2016. It was Cameron thinking, well, I've won this first majority in so long. The next election will get a majority of 100. Uh, we'll win this. I won the AV referendum. I, re I won Scotland. I'll win this. I'll go down in history as a really decisive prime minister. And he lost. And that kind of risk won't be taken in the present climate. So I agree. Do you not think there's something interesting in Cameron's orientation to the referendum in the first place? Because you get the, the, the standard story on the left is he massively overplayed his hand. Didn't he really screwed up? Um, and I think <laughs> I think that's true. Um, but doesn't it just continue? And it's a point that Ivan Rogers, of all people, made um, in a speech recently, um, where he's pointing out that he's in a long tradition of British exceptionalism. So that for him, um, and I think probably for the majority of the Conservative Party, and probably certainly for uh, the. Uh, Remaniacs in the Labour Party who are continuing the mountain war against Brexit. Um, uh, you know, you want to be just within the perimeter of the single market and the customs union. You certainly don't want, you know, not a Europe of different speeds, because that suggests you're converging towards the same goal. Um, you know, you want a, a Europe of different strata. And for Cameron, that seemed to me to be obviously his politics. Um, and it seems to me to still obviously be the politics of quite a lot of the parliamentary party. Um, so, so the question then is, why is it impossible for them to any longer achieve something that looks like this? Because it seems to be being pulled in all these different directions. Um, is it ever really possible to leave the EU? I, I will talk because I'm the one who I'm on the Remain side. And if if the answer would be no, I would I would be also devastated because any group that you are going to join once and for all again and never come out of that, it scares me quite a lot. But my argument, if, I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into that, is that we can stay, we should stay, and we should try to reform uh, the EU. Now, a lot of people say that this may or may not be possible. Yeah, a lot of people say that it's not going to be possible. My answer, the short answer to that, I have a very long one if you want to go there, <laughs> uh, is that we never tried. Mm -hmm. So even when people say to me, for example, oh, but we are going to have a labor uh, government, and then they, if we are on the EU, they will not allow us to do the things we want to say. I said, let's play this card. Let's have a socialist government, let's be in the EU, and let's pick a fight and say, you know what, this is what I want to do. 
and let's see if they're going to stop us or not. What I hate is the left that it talks, and it has big and very leftist ideas, from their sofa. And there, they don't give a about what will happen with the people, how many rights we are going to lose, how many of our um, uh, things that we take for granted. And this I hate. This is but, a strong point, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, virtually the UK is, is you know, is, is already outside the EU, right? It's, it's going to be another few months and then it's going to be out automatically almost, right? Um, so I don't think it's a question of the UK trying to change the, um, uh, sorry, the UK trying to change the EU from the inside because it's, it's, it's almost outside. Well, that argument could apply to any other EU member. Um, and yet again, I'm very skeptical that any other EU member, even the big ones like, say, France or Italy, could somehow change the treaties that somehow, you know, enshrine that liberal ethos uh, that uh, is, is provoking much of the discontent we have been witnessing over the last few years. Uh, and that's got a very simple reason. Basically, in order to change the treaties, uh, you need to have an unanimous vote in the European Council of all the member states. Uh, is that ever going to be possible? We know that the public opinions uh, this you know, go very democratic travel at very different speeds. Uh, there are very different debates. Uh, and, uh, you know, the anti-Keynesian bias in, in Germany, in, in places like the Netherlands, is so ingrained. Uh, go try to, you know, convince them. Go try to persuade their public opinion that, uh, uh, you know, their monetarist policy is, is bogus and needs to be uh, overturned. And I will... Well, sorry, let me just, just to finish this off. Um, imagine there's another Greece. Imagine there's another, another you know, imagine Italy tomorrow. Uh, no, let alone the fact that now we've got a, a right-wing a right populist. But imagine another country that from a progressive emancipatory position says that European Union stop that we want to expansionary policies we want to uh, you know uh, increase aggregate demand we want to this did this that rise wages you know liberate the people uh, and the European the, the European Union says no sorry you can't uh, so what do you do you uh, comply with those things or or what um, this thing I hate this discussion some and I but tell they're you real why. They're, they're real no no they have they, they have very big problems in this discussion two problems I have First of all, there are things in the treaties that they never apply when we are doing politics within the European Union. And I'll give you an example of what I, I, I mean. Yeah? European Central Bank, European Stability Mechanism, negotiations with Greece, they stop liquidity, we go into capital controls and so on. The idea there, and what is in the treaties, is that the European Central Bank should have as their aim the stability of the Union as a whole. And we know that since this happened with Greece, all sorts of things have started, and a, a lot of Euroscepticism have started to gain ground within the European Union. In the treaty, it is that the European Central Bank should work for the stability of the Union as a whole, and it did exactly the opposite thing. So it's not about only the legal framework and how you change it. Of course, you can change any legal framework. It is about politics. Now, the same has happened with the refugees, for example. It is in the European treaties. It's Article 19 of the European uh, Charter on, of Fundamental Rights, which says that the, the expulsions of refugees are forbidden. And yet, you have in the European Union a deal with Turkey, which I'm totally against, which it, it is effectively expulsions of refugees, sending them back to a country Turkey, which is not even safe. So the problem is not necessarily the legal framework. It is how you do politics within the European Union. And what I, I don't like in this discussion is that even the left 
it puts these laws in a point where it says, oh, but this, this we cannot change. This, this is written on stone. Politics doesn't matter when you have a legal system. And in this way, you don't empower people. You do exactly the opposite. Are you going to respond to that or am I? will be quick. Go for I mean, it. Francois Hollande was elected in 2012. You're saying, has anybody said, do we want to try and do something differently? You know, um, increase public spending slightly, def deficit finance, public spending to boost aggregate demand. He was saying this in 2012. And within about six months, they were like, you can't do that, pal. And this is France. So, and it's quite a moderate social, very vanilla, moderate social democrat, which tells you nothing can really happen. 2011, you had a, a technocrat parachuted into Italy, uh, Mario Monti. Same year, Luca Papademos was parachuted into Greece. There's a great quote here from Tom Kibassi, who wrote a piece in today's Guardian. And this is particularly relevant to the British concept, uh, context. The great deceit of British politics for the past 40 years has been passing off unpopular choices made in Westminster as instructions received from Brussels. EEA membership would allow that coward's game to continue. So let's end the coward's game. Well, let's have British politicians responsible for what happens in this country, migration policy, trade policy, tax and spend, NHS. Let's make them responsible. Let's get rid of this, this, this layer of unaccountability and democratic deficit. And then we can boot people out and we don't want them. But isn't the truth that you can, can never I get answer rid of? to that? First of all, I don't think any country can do and change things on its own. That's why I'm campaigning with another Europe is possible. But this is capitalist and realism. I think, I think it will take a lot of Agency countries that they will try to win and have uh, socialist governments in power and create a, 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 a strong blocking there, yeah? The but you just need one country there to stop everything, and that's Germany. Yeah. That's exactly uh, right. I think we're ignoring the elephant in the room here. Yeah. Um, and even the, the legal framework. Of course, the legal framework is just paper. And if you look at Germany, Germany breaks the rules change? consistently. Uh, and the legal framework is not applied to them. They run trade surpluses, which, has, which are outrageous. And they are harmful to you know, most of the economies of the country, especially the, you know, the peripheral southern economies. Uh, and yet, of course, that doesn't apply. I agree that we should do politics. But where does politics um, really have some, some meaning, you know, some meaning to the people, to the real people, not to you know, cosmopolitan like us who engage in politics, you know, to people who live in the suburbs. It has got sense at national level. And so what happens is that if you manage to construct a collective will at a national level, say in Italy, say in Spain, say in Portugal, what do you do against the no of the European Union? Do you start thinking strategically or do you wait until other countries? Of course, the more countries join in the battle, in the fight against this type of European Union, the better and the stronger will be. But you know, of course, the, the different speeds and, as I say, to change the European treaties, uh, um, which is at the end of the day, you know, you politics, but also to sort of, you know, change laws, change rules, change norms, um, you need, you know, a majority that, uh, you know, it will be very you know difficult to hold. is different than norms. The whole point is, this is Southern, Europe, <laughs> Southern Europeans in action. Look. The whole point is the EU exists, the ECB, the Eurozone, it exists so that there can't be a prototype for something else. And if there can't be a prototype for something else, then what are people going to imitate? And so this idea of choreography across 28 member states, no, have one country, two countries, three countries, do so if Mélenchon and Corbyn and Adekalau and cities, regions and a few countries across Europe offer an alternative, that's gonna change things. But that's not gonna happen inside the status quo, it's gonna happen during a rupture with it. Let me suggest a couple of things here. So one is that I think it's true, and I think it's often underestimated, how significant constitutionally the existence of the European Union is. Um, so those treaties, the Treaty of Maastricht in particular, those treaties 
very, very hard to unpick. You know, and one of the things that Richard Tuck, who's a political theorist at Harvard, says is, is British people are not very used to thinking about things in terms of constitutional forms because they don't really have one. <laughs> Failed revolution, bad country. Um, so, the, the um, but but what matters here is, is that is is that he points out that once you know once you achieve a constitutional framework, it's very very difficult to unpick and change it. It fixes those moments in time. And his example, of course, is the American Constitution, and I think that's important. However, what I would say, and I don't want to kind of straw man a Lexit position here, because I, I don't think anyone holds the most caricaturable one, is that the EU nonetheless remains, even if you're outside of it, but geographically located next to it, it remains a ma the major trading partner, Britain. <coughs> and it is also a regulatory superpower. So the problem for me, and look, I think it's, it's very different, Britain negotiating this to, say, Italy or Greece negotiating this, because Britain, as an economy, as a capitalist centre, has certain weight that, you know, the periphery countries of the EU don't. Um, it nonetheless seems to me that, that, that you know, the, the EU itself has a regulatory weight and power that's going to be very, very difficult, um, you know, to trample over, uh, merely because we want to do things a bit differently. Now, that's not an argument necessarily for not trying, but it is an argument for perhaps taking a somewhat pragmatic... I mean... Shall, I, we, shall we discuss that, trade deals? And I want to I just quick, quick, go back, quickly going back to the prototype point. Look, if you look at what happens in the 19th century, Eric Hobsbawm writes three great books about this, right? Change between the late uh, 18th century, early 20th century, and talks about the age of, of revolution and the age of industry. And during the age of industry, he talks about the rapid diffusion of rail, of Bessemer steel production of how you have telegraph cables straddle the whole continent of Europe and then very so sh shortly after the world, very quickly. And this wasn't done through global coordination because you create collective action problems. This was done through prototyping. They're doing this, we're going to mimic it, we're going to improve on it. And because of the world system we live in, that takes place within a, a context of, an ontology of, nation states. And uh, I was, we talked to pa uh, your, your uh, comrade, Paolo Gibaldo. There's this discourse in Southern Europe about sovereignism. If you talk about nation states being able to do things like run a socially owned healthcare system, that apparently is an, is an appeal to fascism. But historically, the big, uh, the big undertakings of humanity have, yes, been done by nation states or corporations trapped within the confines of nation states. So. I mean, uh, you, you I don't know where your, where's your theory, where is your theory of agency? Well, I'm the capitalism that they have, yeah. Where's your theory of agency? Where, where, does, where does agency come from? Unless it's some magical, you know. What are you talking about? I don't but, know. That's an open question. Is it for, uh, I think he, he's, uh, he's done to you, really. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Because, I, but, but since you open it, so if I understand you correct, mm -hmm. and I'm bringing something uh, different in, in the case of Italy, now that you have, if, if I will call it fascist government, we'll your answer to that is that we will go out <laughs> and we will leave the refugees in their hands. Yeah? Is, well, is this the answer? Well, uh, I think the, 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 the matter under discussion was a little slightly different. I mean, no, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not I'm taking I'm the defensive. Well, I Italy. think, uh, yeah, about Italy. And, and, and okay, Italy. Let, let, let me take a little bit of control of this conversation. Right. <laughs> out, sorry, sorry, here. it's my fault. Yeah. It's no, 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 no. But I think so. So let's let's concentrate because we'll come to Italy and we'll come to populism and we'll come to uh, the rather terrifying speech made by Salvini in 
Sicily just a, a couple of days ago, which I think is telling about uh, some of the pressures Europe as a whole is under. Um, I, I, I want to just focus for a moment on trade, which is not a very fashionable thing, especially for the left to talk about, because they don't like it very much. Oh, it is, uh, I think. <laughs> you think so? Yeah, the last years, at least. Oh, God, I, I can barely get anyone to well, talk uh, about Well, I think it. this is being hotly debated these days, right, within the Labour Party. I mean, I, I, I'm not like a, 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 you know, a fanatic lexiter. Let's, I think we should be pragmatic. We should problematise the euro and the euro... From Euros. 1 to 10? How much? Well, I, I, the, the, you know, von Clausewitz used to say that, that any strategy, in the, you, know, you know, can resist only the first five minutes of war, and then after that you, you somehow, you know, be more malleable and more, and more, and more strategic and more, you know, so, so somehow see how the variables change and then take the right course. Um, so what I think is important to note about this, uh, this whole discussion which is going on within the Labour Party is, uh, you know, the whole matter of the single market. Um, because if uh, the, Europe, the European Union says... Uh, in order to stay in the single market, uh, all those nice proposals that are contained in the, in the manifesto of Jeremy Corbyn cannot be implemented, uh, well, then maybe we should really consider the idea that the single, you know, staying tied to the single market possibly is not a very good idea. On the contrary, if we manage to scrap a deal by which uh, you stay in the single market uh, and yet you can you know, do um, nationalization, so you can do state aid, you can do public procurement, uh, well, uh, well, then maybe it's got, you know, it has a sense to stay in, in, the, in the single market. Because after all, we need to take into account that, of course, um, you know, trade happens also between industries. There are you know, value chains across Europe. That's undeniable. And yet, you know, we need to ponder, we need to consider the cost of any course of action. We leave, we leave the single market, but we can implement nationalization, sir, state aid, and so on and so forth. Maybe we cannot, sir, because, to, because we need to defend the value chains. I don't know. I don't have the numbers here, but I think that any, any, uh, you know, any um, uh, party, any coalition in government should consider these things much more carefully I, than I, really taking a side a priori. So I, I want to reply first on this point about state aid and nationalizations, which are a little bit. Oh, don't different. give me the article of uh, the, uh, of, of those. Uh, we, that, which... which is different from the point about trade deals. Yeah. So there is a lot of work that has been done on uh, what is happening with the Labour Manifesto in, in terms of state aid, because these nationalizations are a big, uh, big part of that. Now, the, um, I think the person who did quite a lot of work is called Andy Tarrant, and he has some papers out uh, as well. So they looked at uh, all the proposals in the manifesto, and none, none of this, it, the, the will, there will be a need to refer it back to the EU, so these nationalizations can happen. The logic, the, this is Very legislation, and it has nothing to do with nationalizations. It has to do with monopolies. I've been working on that for months and months and months. So the, the problem, so with the nationalizations or what is in the labor manifesto, there is not going to be a, a problem. But I think this with the nationalizations is a little bit misleading. And that's, that's what, sorry that I interrupt you. I'm, no, I'm getting excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, um, we all are. Um, the reason being that it's not about the nationalizations. And if that was the case, for example, uh, when we go to Colchester, you or me in Norwich, it will, the, that part of the rail it would be owned by a Dutch national company, yeah, which is Abellio Greater Anglia. So it's not about nationalization. The legislation there is about monopolies. And the idea with state aid was that you don't allow any government to give a lot of money in a particular area for their friends, if they are friendly 
necessarily with that, and they are going to support a particular government. This is why, in some cases, in order to be okay with uh, not to have a monopoly, you refer them back to the uh, European Union. In this case, the Labour Manifesto has nothing to do with that. But please do read, uh, I think it's Andy Tarrant, yeah? yeah? No, no, so you, you can go on that. The trade deals, now it's a, it's a different matter. And the trade deals, we are going to have a big problem for reasons that you already mentioned. There is somebody, which I don't know if I should, uh, I should mention his name, who is a Lexter. Well, I, I think we all know. Shall I? I mean, he's a public. John Hillary. All right, I know yeah. that. that's good. Yeah. Welcome, John, John Healy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because he wrote a booklet on uh, trade deals and uh, in relation to TTIP as well. So he's a lexter. He doesn't like uh, the EU. And throughout, please do read it. It has come out from the Rosa Luxemburg Institute. Throughout, although he wants to argue against the EU, it is as if he has a love affair with the EU. Throughout this whole thing, he says how much better is the legislation of the EU if you compare it in, in terms of trade deals, in, if you compare it with the US uh, legislation. I mean, read it and tell me if I'm right. But the problem a lot of us we have with the possible trade deals that we are going to strike is that they will have all the characteristic of TTIP that we have all of us tried to fight against. Mainly also one of the pro very problematic issues is the ISDS. Uh, the investor state dispute settlement, which there we are talking about trade deals that you will have courts, courts that they will be made from international lawyers, that they are on the side of investors, not even isn't courts. The, doesn't, in a, doesn't the after court, you know, I mean, if there's, if there's, you know, aren't we going to be, let's, let's assume we're not going to remain in the EU. It doesn't seem to me likely that we're going to, uh, we're going to, to do that. Um, if we're subject to the after court, then, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't it likely that we're going to be in a worse position than we were in or out? Well, I originally said, I went to, when I said voted Remain at the last, in the last four weeks, I said, well, it looks like now if we leave the EU, we'll also be leaving the EEA, which I'd previously thought was impossible because it would be an economic catastrophe. Mm. Um, so in terms of standards, we've had international standards for a range of things since the late 19th century. You know, there's international standards organisations for a whole range of things. The idea that all of a sudden in Britain we use different nuts and bolts to what people use in Holland or Germany, I think, is a bit silly. In terms of the monopolies point, some things you do want a monopoly. You do want a monopoly in energy. You do want a monopoly in, for instance, a postal service. You do want a monopoly for transport because we know that where you don't have monopolies and... There are certain things that tend to natural monopoly and therefore the, uh, the imposition of market mechanisms for privatised rail, it doesn't work. So that's one thing, for instance, and, and you're entirely right. Um, at the end of the day, if we leave the EU, if we leave the EEA, nobody's saying socialism is inevitable, but it strikes me as an ideological capitulation. If you say we will accept stuff that imposes all manner of asymmetrical tra trade deals in the global south, and if we, you know, we have to do this, otherwise we'll be more like the United States. I mean... I mean, again, that's a question of politics and about the arrangement of class forces. A year ago, before the last general election, that would have sounded highly, highly likely. Now it sounds significantly less likely. That's about politics. And again, you know, the job of the left is not to capitulate to what, you know, mainstream media tells us about the inevitabilities of the class struggle. That's not what we do. Otherwise, why are we doing this? Why don't we just vote Lib Dems and get on with our lives? <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing this because we think we have a role in history to change it. 
Yeah, just yeah. to uh, public uh, ownership, uh, by the way, and monopolies. Even within the Labour Manifesto, we are talking about different forms of nationalisations, and it's not one uh, necessarily thing. And if you think how some of us we are thinking about different things, I find it strange that we are talking about nationalisations sometimes without knowing the history of nationalisations. It was social democratic governments that they did quite a lot of nationalisations uh, in the EU. In the case of Greece, actually, it was conservative governments as well. And while I think that we should also be discussing about workers having control, how the, what form these nationalizations will have as well. You know, just to build up on it, I think, I mean, you were referring to this article of uh, Tarrant and, and Biondi. But I think that was a very pretty weak, uh, weak argument uh, uh, based on a lot of flawed assumptions. And uh, I mean, th there was a very benign interpretation of, of legal, of, of European regulations. Uh, and one thing, I mean, I, I think that there was a, a response by La Pavitsas. I know you, you like a lot on the Jacobin that I think responded very, um, very nicely to, um, to that article by um, highlighting the fact that uh, Unless you have a monopoly there, a state monopoly, you know, if even if the European regulation allow for the state to be one of the competitors, well, most of the time the market undercuts the state provider. Uh, and how does it do it? It's, well, by you know squeezing the wages. Um, so um, it's, it's not ideal to have to have you know nationalisation by you know by maintaining the market. The thing is that the European Union does not permit to you know break them you know to get rid of the market altogether, which is what should be done. Um, and there are a lot of you know. You should raise a lot of cases to the European Union for them to approve things like that. And, and you know, since uh, things are not necessarily legal, but political, as you were saying before, most of the time these things will be rejected by the European Union because, because we know by whom it, that is run. So yeah, I think that once, once, you, you, once you are out, uh, well, then you don't have to be afraid of you know, ending up in the European Court of Justice uh, and having to respond for your political actions and for your, for your deeds. I, okay, I would let, me, like... let, me, let me come in here. There, there are two things, it seems to me, that, that, that are very obvious in any discussion of this. One is the, the sheer morass of technical detail uh, mm -hmm. over which very few people have a grasp. One of the ironies of uh, uh, a referendum that was powered on contempt for expertise is that it has, of course, concluded uh, in the march of the experts, some of them more expert than others. Um, what also strikes me in this conversation or, or in conversations around Brexit generally is a lack of a sense that the situation that, that Britain has been in since triggering Article 50, the article that, that initiates the exit process, has been one of negotiation with the EU. And that means the EU no longer has an interest in Britain's uh, well-being. Now, Britain should still function. It's an important trading partner for Europe. But it certainly means that there is no um, status quo ante to return to. Certainly, if Britain were ever to re-enter the European Union, it wouldn't do so with the rebates and various kind of privileges it has had thus far. Um, it's also the case that, that we cannot therefore as the left, expect the EU to undertake, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, positive, democratic, collaborative process. You know, EU trade negotiators are famed the world across for being utterly ruthless bastards because That's they're they really the good at their job. Um, and we have David Davis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that it sort of brings me on to my next question, really, which is, what is the sense um, of Brexit outside of Britain? What does the continental left make of Britain's fleeing from the European Union?
I don't think in Greece, for example, people care that much <laughs> to tell you the truth. There are two reasons for that. Yeah? One is that always, as you already mentioned, Britain was already, it wasn't part of the Eurozone, which is a, a different problem, and we can discuss it separately. It, and all, on the one hand, so it wasn't that much of a part. Culturally, as well, it always, well, I mean, even in language in British, we say the continent, <laughs> which is somewhere out there while we are a different uh, part of the world. That's how they say it as well, <laughs> the continent. The, 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 second, the second part is, um, so I said that, that they don't care that much. One is because Britain was always disassociated, but the second, which people forget sometimes, is the role that Britain has played in <laughs> up. Sorry. <laughs> the, the EU. Be a beat, you need uh, to apologize now. Just for Ofcom. Sorry. Really sorry oh, about that. Actually, can you? Yeah. Uh, and the role Britain has played in promoting these neoliberal policies within the EU. As you said, yeah, there is a point, probably Maastricht, and further that things started to go uh, sour for the EU generally. But before that, we had a vision of a social, I, I want to think of a socialist EU as well. And Britain has played a very, very big role in pushing the most reactionary um, legislation with the EU and making neoliberal. And unfortunately, it wasn't only the Tories. Yeah? Mm -hmm. That's all true. Yeah, it's undeniable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's a European demos as such. Mm -hmm. And I think forcing um, people to have uh, a constitution to stay together at this level without, you know, having these this, this, this feelings of, uh, of commonality, I think it's a little far-fetched. And, uh, and let's not forget that the European Union and the uh, European uh, economic community before have always been, um, and deliberately so, uh, instruments that have been oriented to, um, you know, to demolish the states and demolish the capacity of the states to implement, you know, social democratic and socialist measures. So, you know, what I feel is that on the left, you have got these sort of, um, um, you know, some people are, you know, are pro-EU because they look at the the packaging, you know, in turn, you know, different people together internationally. So, we know, but but they neglect the contents. They neglect the contents of it. Saying that that's not nice. But this is putting people together. This is not this is not putting people together. This is this is pitting people against each other. That's the thing. Let me ask a question that kind of arises from that because I think I think it's true that um, so uh, you know as Aaron was suggesting earlier that one of the functions of the EU has been to allow national politicians to blame on the European Union things that they implement domestically. Right, this is a kind of Peter Mayer thesis about you know, the way in which the national polity and European polity interact. And that's especially true, I think, in the case of economic policy. Um, and I think that seems especially true in Italy yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Um, tell us just a bit about what's going on in Italy, what has happened. Because I think it's an interesting case study in the relationship between uh, one, a member state, and, which is a Euro member, mm -hmm. uh, and, say, the ECB, but in also... Eurozone? Uh, um, uh, uh, so, I mean, I was, I was amazed to see Giva Hofstad's sort of tinnied response, which is like the only words for Hofstad knows, which is, structural reform must take place, structural reform must take place, <laughs> which, you know, in response to this kind of extremely, uh, ang obviously angry electorate. Well, I mean, uh, to cut a long story short, on the 4th of March, there were, you know, elections were, were held in Italy, and, um, you know, the uh, 
their managed two parties uh, as victorious, uh, the Farsta movements and the, the League, which is not called the Northern League, by the way, but it's just called the League. Well, and that's a significant change. Uh, just, you know, uh, maybe it's worth clarifying for, for the British public because uh, the Northern League has, has kind of shifted from a federalist, a Saxonist policy, politics that, you know, characterized before to a more kind of Lepinist uh, uh, politics, which encompasses the whole, the whole country. Um, and they have been playing very hard the, the racist card, the xenophobic card. Um, so, well, these two parties were not allied before the elections, uh, but somehow they were the only parties that put together in parliament could form a majority and, and permit the formation of a government, uh, which is in the end what happened after a very long uh, and complex uh, negotiation. Um, now, the, um, a few weeks ago, when, they, uh, when the head of state uh, uh, gave uh, you know the, the mandate to the, to uh, Conte uh, as interim uh, prime minister to to form a government. Uh, they picked this person, Paolo Savona, who is a you know a quite obscure economist. You know, I, my, myself to be honest, I didn't know him very well. And he's he's a guy who has been part of the establishment, but for some reason, in the last few years, he had been a minister of finance back in the day, I think in the 90s, and he's in his 80s, right? And the guy, at some point in his career, in his 70s, started to say a few things about Germany, about the euro, but from a you know from a right wing perspective. And these guys picked him as the finance minister, as, as the interim finance minister. When they presented the list of the minister to Mattarella, the head of state, who heads to you know constitutionally to sign for you know for the formation of government, uh, he refused to do so, uh, on the ground that uh, and here I think he was uh, he, he was pretty um, you know somehow it was silly of the head of state to put this so bluntly in his you know in his message in his message to the nation. We're not going to allow the formation of this government uh, because we don't want to scare the markets. So somehow uh, he could have somehow you know got it through you know say something else, uh, but he blatantly admitted that we were blackmailed by the markets uh, and uh, um, and basically said well not to the formation of the of this government with this guy. After a while, I think he realized he had committed a yeah. big mistake, uh, and that's why um, well he gave the interim to Cottarelli, uh, who is uh, you know a former um, IMF official. Um, you know, technocrat, uh, you know, he was, he's, he's called Mr. Sisters in Italy because he was at the, you know, at the very, uh, you know, is the head of the spending review of, of Letta and, and Renzi. Um, they realized, of course, that he didn't have, you know, any backing in parliament. Uh, and so Mattarella went back to the two forces that won, that won the elections. Uh, and, you know, there was a, some, somehow an agreement between Mattarella and these two forces by which Savona, this, this guy, you know, the, 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 polemical, the polemical figure, was moved to a different, to a different uh, uh, minister. The thing, the, you know, the very astonishing thing here is how prog progressive, so-called progressives reacted, you know, to what happened in those days. Because at the end of the day, if we take popular sovereignty seriously, you know, these, these people won the election, lie them or not, and I don't like them, I despise them. You know, they had the right to govern. And, you know, it was up to the left to conduct a different type of politics uh, and somehow hegemonize the discontent that these other two forces were able to hegemonize better than any other leftist actor. Instead, no, what they say is that the head of state was right. Uh, you know, the, the spread, you know what the spread is, uh, the, the differential between the yield of German bonds and the yield of Italian bonds, uh, you know, the spread was increasing and we should heed that, we should take care, we should, we should be very attentive to that. Somehow it was a complete giving in to the power of the market, to the European Union, especially to Germany, which, by the way, in those days published very offensive, uh, um, you know, some, of, uh, some that, of its yeah. magazines published very offensive uh, um, cartoons and then 
then uh, well we've seen that with Greece yeah we've seen that with Greece you know portraying the Italian people as utterly responsible as stupid as sort of committing lazy. A, a suicide and lazy and so you know all the typical stereotype of Italian people I, I, I've been, I went through that for Greece as well, that we, there, there was the same portrayal as well. And of course, there was, it was the moment that you feel that there is no solidarity on European level as well. But I don't know if my understanding of that is correct, is that also the, neither of the two, however, of these two parties, they campaigned against the euro. Don't well, they? here's the thing. Um, they've always expressed uh, somehow... Um, positions against the euro but in a very incoherent so you know it wasn't the main message in the campaign and yet it was there um is a typical guy who says one thing in a moment 30 minutes later he was saying a different thing to another audience you know and salvini uh, pretty much the same story um and yet, you know, the contract that they signed to go to form the government didn't include the euro question. I know, and can I, I just, think... Yeah, that I, is, is that possible? Yeah. Um, Salvini, I mean, Salvini has said that the euro was a crime against humanity. So it's pretty clear what he thinks, right? Yeah, sure, but, but at the same the time, they reassured... They, I mean, surely he, he thought that, but at the same time, they didn't say they were going to do it. Uh, no, no, so, I mean, you shouldn't have been... Obviously, you shouldn't have been... And, and, yeah, and, and, and still, and still um, uh, I think, uh, you know, they won the election, sir. So, we could debate on whether exiting the euro requires more debate, more, you know, debate within the public opinion, uh, uh, whether they should express it more openly or not. Uh, uh, but, you know, at the same time, you cannot, uh, you know, say, no, they can't go to government simply because uh, I agree there, with there's that. something that, you know, the head of state doesn't like. I agree with what you're saying, but uh, the reason why I asked you that is that, and, and I think it was something that Aaron was saying before, that I don't think there is the appetite in the public, Italian public and Greek public, to get, as, as the situation is, yeah, I don't know in the future, to get neither outside the Eurozone nor outside the EU. And I think this is why these people, they didn't uh, campaign for that. Mm. Uh, but I think they campaign against the refugees, no? Well, let me just say one thing about the um, uh, the, the the position, uh, the, the, the question of the euro and Europe in general in Italy. I think there is a latent euroscepticism in Italy, which is not as strong as uh, as in France or as in UK in the UK, of course. And it is not the reason why the two parties won the election. That's that's sure enough. Um, and yet they were able to politicize that. You know, that's what that, that's what is dangerous. The, the the left by refusing to take up the battle to discuss. Uh, thoroughly on the question of the euro has permitted the right winger to politicize this question um, so that they had it as sort of this guy's message, the head of state rises up, doesn't permit the formation of government. people realize that yes, it is the euro, it is the markets, it is Germany. The, it's a battle that will remain in, 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 in the hands of the right for a long time. That the reaction to my, you know, because the, there was some really furious reaction, you know, like, or baffled reaction um, from the stuff I was reading in Italy. Uh, it seems to me that 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 provides an instructive parallel. And I don't think anyone here wants it, but those calls from you know the trucker-umanist wing of uh, the Romaniac ultras to just reverse the referendum, or you know, and so on and so on. You know, there's obviously there's obviously no way through that. But what what always baffles me is that it doesn't seem to me that there's that you know that there's any way to do um, to to that that we're not leaving. <laughs> Can I, I mean, if you'd, as asked, I, as I have. if you'd asked a young Hungarian in 1989, do you want to, you know, get rid of this regime? Or, uh, uh, you know, a, a Ukrainian or Russian in 1988, do you want to see the end of the Soviet Union? 
I can guarantee you they would have said the same thing that Italians and Spaniards are now saying within the Eurozone because a break with the status quo of that significance is going to be incredibly painful. But the point is they weren't sufficiently resilient in a political sense. And the, the most Eurosceptic segments of Italian society are the young. The younger you are, the more Eurosceptic you are. It's like Britain, but inverted. And the thing that I think is really important now, for, we're seeing sort of the Mattarella thing brings it back up again. And we saw it in this country. We saw it with Hillary Clinton. Um, the left cannot tie itself to failing liberal institutions because it's, it's a losing game. So, for instance, if you're going to tie yourself to a bunch of institutions which are in decay, they're losing consent, we know that over time pretty much every European member state has less and less confidence in the European project, and then you're saying, well, this is ballast for our domestic social reforms, our domestic social agenda, I think it's limited. And then finally, this concept of reforms that's always, you know, that's the patter of these people. It could be Verhofstadt, it could be Ummann, it could be anybody. Reforms for what? Reforms for what? So it reminds me of Manuel Castell's concept of timeless time. You know, it's time beyond time. These are the reforms beyond the reforms. There is, no, there is no salvation. There is no final resting place. There is merely reforms, the liminality of constant reforms, constantly restructuring society for the needs of capital. And that's precisely but, what reforms mean. Let me, let, me, let me ask but a final question. Th can I answer to that for a moment? I mean, <laughs> I, I understand where you come from, but... I think all this time we are discussing from a very particular point of view. What I look when I look at the EU and what frightens me is that there are already very strong blocks there that they are willing to challenge what you call the status quo. It's fascist. It's countries that they have already formed their own groups, which the rest of us, or from a left perspective, we haven't. And I'm talking uh, about Hungary and so on. And they want to destroy this project, and I don't want to assist them at all. At the same time, we forget, and the left does that all the time, I think, that there are other things that they are happening. For example, the refugee crisis. Yeah? And this will be something that, for example, I think it played a big role in the Euroscepticism that you have in Britain, although you don't really have refugees, despite the fact that uh, Britain bombed a uh, big part of the world, but also how we are going to respond to that, it's a matter that I think it has to happen collectively. So for me, it is a reform. Uh, I do understand where people come from. I do understand the problems that the EU project has, especially within the Eurozone as well, which, okay, we may not have uh, time to go into the particular details, but I want to say that I'm a little bit more optimistic, not because of Italy, don't worry. <laughs> the, this spoils my day immediately, because as you said, it shows that the left didn't have a response. It didn't take the, uh, uh, the opportunity to hegemonize this space. But I'm more happy because of Spain, because finally we got rid of Rajoy. We have a government by Pessoa, Sanchez, which is not necessarily my favorite person on the planet, and definitely he's not a rebel and he's not going to do very much, but the government of Rajoy came down with the help of Podemos. Yeah, that's a good and, that's a good development, yeah. yeah. it's a good development. And I think if they manage to, to stick with that for a year, I think in a year's time they will have a general election. I hope, it's hope, that something positive will happen. I've got time to... Uh, 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 Go for it. Yeah, no, because um, um, you, you call them, uh, these governments fascist. I'm, 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 I'm not too acquainted with the they situation either. in Hungary and in... Uh, 
But uh, I think that to call the league fascist is, uh, I think it's it's wrong, both analytically and strategically. Analytically, because I mean, if we want to be a little uh, somehow rigorous about the definition of fascism, these guys, you know, they do not have any millenarist myth. Uh, they, you know, they do not have a very military outlook. Uh, they're not planning marches in Rome, uh, and I think you know they're not. I don't think they somehow hide totalitarian aspirations. You know, it's 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 a party that works. Uh, I in call the elect- a lot of people fascists. <laughs> I know, I know, but that's, I think that's a definite of the left. And be aware, these guys have got you know now in the polls they have the thirty percent of the electorate on their side, which means that if you call them fascists, these people are going to think, well, I vote for the league, but I don't feel a fascist. So are you calling me a fascist? And those are the people who have felt the most, uh, you know, the uh, effects of, uh, reform, of structural reforms of neoliberalism and so on and so forth. That is the discontent that needs to be generated. If you call them fascists, they're never going to look but at you. But the same goes with we had this debate here with racism, and people will say, yeah, I don't like migrants, and please, can you? go away, but okay, we are not racist and so on. And there is a discussion. I understand what you say about fascism. I do call a lot of people fascist. Extreme right for me, it's already... Okay, let me, let me ask, because it's, it's interesting, the Spanish case, and uh, it sort of relates to some of the stuff here. So my understanding is that Sanchez has said that he will stick to the spending limits uh, initially, um, certainly for the next year. Uh, and it, it reminded me, and it's sort of the converse situation here, and one of my great anxieties or one of, my, one of the things that causes me great scepticism about the kind of really gung-ho Lexit fantasies is simply there will inevitably be market discipline uh, if Britain leaves the EU. There will probably be uh, not as dramatic... Uh, uh, an economic catastrophe as re- was predicted before the referendum. It's a strategic mistake, by the way. Um, but there will inevitably be serious economic consequences. We may even see, depending on the final agreement, we may see the end of passporting. So for any socialist government that was elected in the wake of something like that, isn't there a serious problem that confronts us simply about tax take? about the basis for achieving those kind of gradualist left reforms that you hope maybe then can lay the ground to something something better. So, so, and I've never really heard a convincing answer. I agree with you yeah, that. And and I'm sorry. Has, uh... So, like, look at, for instance, uh, the Labour manifesto promised to insulate four million homes. We have tens of thousands of people die every winter because of cold. You can insulate homes with hay. Right, and this is this is this is not me talking. This is Alice Bell who works at uh, 2020. You don't need cutting-edge technology to insulate homes. Well, you, know, you can, right? And that's the, the, again, again, no, no, but it buys into it buys into this idea that we it's an it's ontology. You have to be bought into this globally fluid networked economy, otherwise everybody's going to die. I mean, and no, 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 actually, I'm not hold on, hold on. Well, if anything, and I'm not a big fan of autarky, but. Actually, autarky is far more plausible in the 21st century than it was in the 20th. So, yes, we do need to grow far more of our food here. That doesn't mean we'll eat parsnips and turnips. It probably means we have to turn towards new forms of farming. It may mean GMO. Yeah.
you know, fine. But, okay. but you do realize that this will take time, and I agree with uh, James on that. I mean, for years, the left was going on about the international capital, and it's the international capital, and suddenly there is no international capital. There is only the local uh, capital. We are going to be an autonomous country, and the international capital will just sit and look how beautiful Corbyn will be uh, in power. And I think, I think the problem that I have with that is what exa exactly what you said, that probably it will make it quite difficult, the, the opposite of what you are arguing before, that it will make this situation, will make it very difficult for a uh, labor government to implement quite a lot of the things that it will implement. But I, I'm against this project theory. I don't think and everything <laughs> suddenly will collapse. Uh, and so no, on. I just I think, think it's good to have I think some it will be slow. I, I think um, it will be slow and progressive and, and so on. Yeah. I think, right, okay, let's take a couple of questions um, and there'll be time for more questions and discussions afterwards. When so we have drinks, you mean? When we have drinks. Okay. Yeah. Um, Scott, you need some. Any questions? I know my priorities. Or have we stunned you all into an amazed silence? <clears throat> yeah, um, I'd like to ask about, so Britain Elects uh, did a study uh, uh, quite recently with the BBC and YouGov um, investigating uh, English identity, but as part of this they also, um, uh, they also asked people about how, uh, whether they felt that Britain was uh, better now or was better in the past. Um, unsurprisingly, leave voting is massively correlated with thinking that Britain now is terrible and the, you know, Britain in the past is far better. Um, and I sort of... <coughs> I wanted to ask, like, if you wanted to convince leave voters to, um, to support a sort of positive political project, how do you go about convincing people who think that the past is wonderful and the present is terrible, that utopia can exist? <laughs> it's a little bit part of human nature to be nostalgic, though, isn't it? In a certain way. In Britain, the maybe more so than anywhere else. No, no, in no, Greece no, no, as no. well. In Greece as well. The good old ancient Greece and how great everything was. Everybody forgets the slaves and things like that. So, yeah, but you know, there was an empire here until like 50, 60 Well, years we ago. had a bigger empire 2,000 years ago. A lot of Greeks remember that and we go for it. You know. um, but the, there are issues of identity. And I think uh, you mentioned something about identity or European yeah. identity as well. And I think it's much easier for people to uh, make a if you allow me a psychoanalytic term, liberal investment in something like the nation, a, a myth of race and so on. That's why we have phenomena like um, racism, the nationalism that is emerging and so on. But I think, because I am optimistic, uh, I think that this may be the first generation a lot of you, you belong to this generation, or this is what I think after the referendum, that I, not my generation, although as a migrant I belong to a different group, that you, you see the first signs of having a European identity. I may be wrong in Britain, but I think um, that something is happening there. I don't, I don't mean that there is a European demos and a European identity. I think something is happening, but I forgot 
the, the question. It's <laughs> <laughs> talking about identity and I forgot the question. Did, did nostalgia, I answer right? that? Like the political uses of nostalgia. And, yeah. and, and, or, and how you would deploy that how, to how, win people like, over. How do you transcend? How do you transcend it? How do you turn a sort of? And it's 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 a guess. It's a question both for Remainers who want to be able yeah. to sort of offer a positive vision um, using a tool using the European Union, which is no one's idea of utopia. And and then, oh, and, but also to Lexiters, like how do you like you? How do you use Brexit when you're core constituency believes that the present is terrible and like how can you how can you sort of create this like how do you not resort to a project fear in either case when you know you um when uh, one side only has a constituency that, that doesn't believe in a positive future and the other side doesn't have any kind of sort of utopia to point to it feels like i mean nostalgia is not always bad so the master frame of the black civil rights movement in the United States was uh, the American Revolution. That was nostalgic. It was saying we want to come good on the founding aims and principles of the U.S. Republic. Uh, you can say that for a bunch of social movements. You can say that the 1830 revolution in France was nostalgic for 1789. You could go as far forward as 1968. Uh, sometimes that's good for progressive change. Sometimes it's not. I think it can be cliched, for instance, on the left to think that, oh, nostalgia is necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's necessarily bad or necessarily good. It's probably neutral. Um, and then I suppose the question points to a strategic question about what kind of rhetoric is not just useful but also preferable, morally preferable, in being deployed in Britain. So clearly the project of Brexit on the left has to be about Britain being a post-imperial state. So how do you appeal to that, if I can understand what you're saying, how do you appeal to that nostalgia with undertones of utopianism uh, whilst also moving beyond the idea of really Britishness itself. I mean, wow. Good question. I mean, it is positive, I think, when I say that it's a social, uh, we can reform, we can come together, we can work for that and create a different type of Europe. I think it has a positive uh, connotation, I think. Don't you think? But it's just another index of how today is that yeah. now no. we're being tyrannized by Europe and, yeah, no, and the no, but, the, but there is something and we have to take it serious this this is our societies the societies that we live in um, that they are constantly bringing up fear and risk and feeling threatened all your life in terms of your personal life or professional life or as a country um, and so on and I think we have to accept these fears and offer what you said a positive vision for how we go about to work together, solidarity, collaboration, and let's change things. I think, I think the question is, what are you, are you nostalgic about, right? I recently edited a book in Italy in which I, in my introductory chapter, I put it this way. Um, our parents, the parents you know, of, of people of my age, like 30, 20s, uh, were born you know, a, little, a little after the, the Second World War. And, you know, Italy was still, you know, a kind of, a, you know, to an extent, a agrarian country. Where, you know, its, its industry hadn't developed much. You know, they, they were in dire straits after the war. And so they were born with an expectation of a so-so life. But, and yet, in the 60s and 70s, they, you know, they saw materializing a sort of a, a quite transverse, a quite wide, um, you know, uh, well-being, you know, the, which somehow involves strata, which used to be, which used to be poor. 
On the contrary, you know, we, you know, we, we, the people like me who were born in the 80s and the 90s, we were born in a period in which we thought, oh, we're going to have, you know, an easy life, you know, you know, because, you know, Italy seemed to be um, a well-off country, you and know, you with a lot of resources. And yet we entered, exactly, we entered the job market after 2007 and 2008. And surprise, surprise, you know, the, you know, the well-being is not there anymore. So when I say, what are you nostalgic about? If you somehow rescue some of the elements, you know, the good elements of the social democratic consensus, you know, the security, the social and economic security that uh, somehow made life of millions easier than what it is now. I think that's a good nostalgia that can play some good results. Of course, you need to mingle it. You need to mix it with, uh, you know, with the, with the Internet, with the technologies, you know, it needs to be updated. Uh, and yet I think some of those elements uh, need to be rescued at all costs because they remind people of a period in which they felt much better than now. Uh, I know there are other questions, but I think we're going to leave it there and we can have a discussion over some drinks. I'm very thankful for you all for coming out this evening. I hope you've enjoyed it uh, and I hope uh, we can now have some arguments. Um, and thank you to my panel. I think Tell it's been fun. Tell me when you can swear again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you very soon. Well, that's all from this week's show and from our first live taping. Thanks to all our participants and to our excellent audience and to Newspeak House for hosting our event. And if you enjoyed it, and if you fancy coming along to our next one, hit up support.navaramedia.com. And as a subscriber, you'll get notifications and access codes for our next event. And if you're not in London, don't worry, we'll be on the road very soon. Thank you for listening. I have been James Butler, and this has been Navara FM. I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye.